Hey guys, welcome back to episode 49 of the All Things Strength and Wellness podcast. I'm your host once again, Robbie Burke. And on this episode, I had the pleasure in interviewing strength and conditioning coach, Kier Winham flat Kier is currently the strength and conditioning coach for the Argentinian rugby team. He's previously been with the Sydney Roosters in Australia and also Wasps rugby in England. On this episode, me and Kier discussed many topics, including Kier's background, Kier's coaching philosophy, energy systems, periodization, and so much more. It was a really great episode, guys. And I hope you guys really enjoy the show. Okay, so we have got Coach Kerr Winham Flat. I hope I pronounced that. <laughs> hope I pronounced that well uh, on the podcast today. It's an absolute pleasure to have him on the show. I'll let him introduce himself. So, Kerr, do you want to introduce yourself to the listeners? Uh, yeah, thanks, Rory. Thanks very much for having me. Um, I'm Kerr Winham Flat. I'm a strength and conditioning coach working within professional rugby. At the moment, I am actually between contracts. In two weeks, I'm going to be heading out to Argentina to, to lead the program there with the Pumas for this year's Southern Hemisphere Championship. And um, I'm going to be with the team until the end of the World Cup next year. And before that, I've worked with Sydney Roosters in the NRL, uh, London Wasps, English Premiership, uh, Rotherham Titans, and London Scottish English Championship. Awesome, awesome. So, you you, you seem to have a, a niche or definitely some sort of link with rugby. Why is rugby your background? And um, just fill us in on that. Well, yeah, uh, rugby was. I, yeah, I started out as a rugby player. From, from the moment I played rugby, I wanted to be a professional rugby player and play for England and all that good stuff. Yeah. And um, when it got to. <laughs> me realising I was never going to be taller than 5 foot 10 and I was never going to be bigger than 85 kilos it became abundant that I was never going to be a professional rugby player and uh, you know, I love the game so I, I wanted to be involved in the game in some way when I grew up and I've always had a scientific mind I liked training for rugby so this was the, the next best thing for me what would you say, Kerr, are the the biggest problems you see within the strength and conditioning industry as a whole? Uh, well, I get a bit of a reputation amongst other coaches for sort of hating on UKSCA and ASCA and things like that, but I think there's a lot of people in the industry that think there's only one way to, to prepare athletes for sport. And so, you know, the, the UKSCA way of you have to do the Olympic lifts, you have to do heavy back squats with your athletes and so on. Um, I think that's quite a, quite a narrow viewpoint. And there's, there's other opinions out there that I think are pretty narrow-minded, like, you know, you only have to get stronger to get faster. Like, I think that's, that can be a bit of a misnomer sometimes. Just other things like that. Yeah, yeah. Who have been your biggest influences on you, both as a coach and as, and as a person? Uh, uh, coaching, I think if you coach a sport where somebody runs, you, you have to listen to Charlie Francis. Yeah, big time. Just because he's, he's produced some of the, the fastest athletes that ever lived um, consistently, and he's got a, he had a real good way of, of putting complex concepts into, into simple language. And other coaches, Buddy Morris, James Smith, uh, two coaches that were at the University of Pittsburgh together. Yeah. Um, 
uh, you know, it's, it's not a perfect um, sort of correlation between American football and rugby, but I think in rugby we have a hell of a lot to learn from American football and, and guys in the NFL and such. And those two guys have been excellent for me in uh, taking sort of Soviet methods of strength and conditioning and making you realise how they work within a team sport setting. And then I suppose to cap that off nicely in terms of energy system development, um, Joel Jameson's been very, very helpful in that regard. Uh, his book is Ultimate MMA Conditioning. Yeah. It's, it's an MMA book, but really it's just the best textbook on energy system development and training that I've, I've ever read. Yeah, definitely, yeah. So yeah. You, can, you can go a bit deeper than, than that book and start to look at the guys that influenced him in writing that book. So Yuri Verkashansky, um, Valner Zedkin, and there's another guy named Victor something, I can't pronounce his second name, but he was the, the PhD supervisor for those two guys. So, yeah. You know, some real interesting minds. Yeah, that, that book, Joel's book, I, 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 Joel's been on the podcast before for anyone listening. I think he was like episode four. But I, I, I remember saying to Joel too, like, you know, when he brings out his second edition, he needs to like re, re, retitle it Ultimate Sports Conditioning because I always say that to people too. It's like, don't don't let the title fool you. It's not just an MMA book. It's it's really like, it's so applicable to every sport. Like, it's, it's one of my favorite training books. Yeah, it's outstanding. And you know he's he's a super nice guy to boot as well. Very very helpful. So I'd recommend any anyone pick up that book. Kier, if I was to ask you um, your your coaching sort of philosophy, the principles that you abide by, what what would your answer be? Ooh, um, I try and look at what are the demands of the sport. Yeah. What are characteristics of my athlete? And how do I address the discrepancies between those two in the least labour-intensive manner possible? And um, I think that's where I sort of start to <laughs> get into friction with certain members of the strength and conditioning community. Uh, you know, you've spoken on this podcast before about the analogy of, of the straight line from A to B. And I think sometimes for the sake of just using fancy exercises or trying to create mental toughness or just doing work for work's sake. Yeah. We incur a lot of um, physiological cost, which is unnecessary. And really, that, that limits how much time that our guys can dedicate to actually playing their sport and refining their skill. And, um, you know, even as a strength and conditioning coach, I'm going to be the first to say that skill is unquestionably the most important aspect of an athlete's preparation. Yeah, and I think strength and conditioning coaches lose sight of that. It's just like, listen, are they actually getting better on the field? Like, <laughs> you know, the, yeah. it, it's just that we seem to just lose sight that the, you know the actual end product is not what they squat, bench press, or or deadlift or power clean. It's actually is their performance. Are they reaching higher levels of sports mastery? Exactly, and that I think in in the field sports and the team sports, maybe combat sports as well. That's that's difficult to do because. Track and field is easy, you know. If, if you if you run in left tire, sorry, that's my dog going crazy. There. No, you're all right. Um, Let him. Let's no no bother. If if you run in less time, you're getting better. If you throw further, you're getting better. If you jump higher, you're getting. Whereas in in team sports, it's a lot harder to pin down whether they're getting better on the field. And I think for that reason, uh, it allows coaches to hide a bit more as well, and yeah. um, we we get away with a lot of substandard coaching in, in team sports but I think even in our sports you have to make an effort to try and get as close 
can to actual on-field uh, KPIs and then see if your training works by assessing those. Yeah, yeah, like, I mean, it, the, the, the one good thing, though, with sort of track and field, as you kind of alluded to there, is that it's so black and white, you know, that, you know, if... if what you do in the weight room really does carry over to 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 like your results in the track and field. But as Dan John says, when it comes to kind of team sports, it gets so much more fuzzier, so many more variabilities that go in. Like, I think everyone listening to this knows like that player who has no interest in the weight room and like they're the best player on the team. Like, it's just because again, this you know this the co- the complexity of the skill, you know, is so oh, yeah. it's it's so far yeah. removed from the GPP like that, you know. Again, strength and then strength coaches lose sight that like you know the SPP or the specific spill is still sort of the the top end thing that we're after. And again, you know yeah. that they just get too focused on oh, what's he squatting and power clean? It's kind of like listen, that's while well, that stuff is one hundred percent necessary, and of course, you know, of course we know it is. You know, you still have to not not, not lose sight of that sports mastery and their and their sports specific skill because at the end of the day. That's really what they're fucking. That's what they're. That's, yeah. that's what they're doing all this stuff for. Like, well, uh, I had a kid at um, London Ross. He was probably the strongest kid I've ever trained. So he came in uh, when he was sixteen. He was ninety three kilos, um, and I think he was like forty five mils of body fat over eight sides. And he was like six foot four, six foot five. Just a freak, was he? Well, no, no. In two years, he was one hundred and sixteen kilos, six foot. And 45 mils of body fat. So he gained 23k of lean mass in two years. And this kid, he benched 180 kilos, trap bar dead in the 250s, back squat 180 to 100. And, you know, he was one of the fastest boys in the team. Yeah. And yet this guy is not a professional rugby player. Now, is the reason he's not a professional rugby player physical preparation? And the answer is obviously no. no the reason is it, he's lacking somewhere in the technical, tactical, or psychological preparation of being a professional rugby player so that's where the individualization comes in and it shows you just how unimportant physical ability can be sometimes this you have to look at the bigger picture yeah yeah and then conversely you get the so you, you get that other athlete who fucking can't squat his body weight can you know can't you know can't even bench press probably 80 percent of body weight can't even do a couple of push-ups well maybe maybe not as far as that but yeah and this this may uh, I wouldn't this probably wouldn't be as prevalent in rugby, but let's say a soccer player, for instance, you get soccer players who are as weak as piss, and but they're unreal. Yeah. They're unreal on the soccer field, then you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think it's obviously the the more the more physical the sport is, the the more physical you're going to have to be. You know, like you get guys that get away with it in cricket, but in the team sports, you you can still get athletes who are. A week and can still play at the very highest level. You just have to have that that blend of different areas of preparation. So yeah, exactly, yeah. It's it, uh, like I've often said it too. It's 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 like because because over here in Ireland we have our Gaelic games and like you know strength and condition is still kind of I wouldn't say in its infancy, but it's it's uh, it's kind of slowly making more of a stronghold within the kind of traditional sports here in Ireland. And like yeah. a, a lot of the old school sort of Irish coaches, you know, with, with regards to like hurling and football, like they're all like, oh, there's too much strength and conditioning now in, in the sport, you know, and there's not enough skill. And then like you get like the strength coaches in the and saying, listen, all your GA players are weak as fuck. But really, it's 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 about it's about like you know, I almost like listen, you need your GPP to support your SPP. But all I'm saying is that strength coaches don't lose sight of the SPP, and then the sport specific coaches realize that you know our job is to is to increase all all of the players athletic biomotor qualities 
and by doing that, you, you, by by increasing their biomolecules, they're gonna have, uh, you know, a a larger engine or or a larger motor potential to express their sport specific skill off. So you know, if you make them a better athlete and a better a better hurler, yeah. Gaelic footballer, like they're gonna reach higher sports mastery. So like, it's about having that kind of thirty thousand square foot view and not kind of being one way or the other, all, all GPP or all SPP. It's about not realizing that both are necessary and GPP needs to be in place to support. The rest people. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, no, it's uh, uh <clears throat> yeah, it's definitely like, and just you know, it's it's always refreshing and great to get like people on the podcast who kind of have a similar sort of you know background and philosophy on that. Yeah, if 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 I was to if if I was to meet up with you now, let's say I, I was an athlete and I walk in and I meet you, like, what happens? Where do we go from there? Like, what's your screening process? Your testing process? What what is your process like? Well, that's um. It's, it's kind of evolved over the last year or so, but you know, I think a, a great thing anyone can do is the FMS. And the FMS is by no means perfect. I think Craig Liebenson had a, a big debate between uh, Gray Cook and Professor Stuart McGill about this. And you know, as with most debates, the guys came out of it and decided they had more in common than uh, they had differences. But for me, the great thing about the FMS is that it's a system and it allows you to just red flag things that you might miss normally and it allows you to organize your thoughts so I always do the FMS um, basic body composition if you can get a test that assess the power and capacity of each of the three energy systems mm-hmm. if you're uh, if you're in a sport where you're going to be doing repeat sprints some sort of test where you're going to have to perform repeat sprints so you're, you're using a, a mixture of three energy systems um and then, what I've looked into a lot recently is um, sort of velocity-specific strength. So if you if you go to complementarytraining.blogspot.com, uh, Martin has he's talked a lot about how you know power output is actually specific to the velocity you operate at in the sport or the movement pattern. So rather than just looking at you know a one rep max and a vertical jump. Um, as I used to, now I'm looking at, you know, speed that you're going to be working at in 1RM and the full spectrum of speed that you're going to work at all the way up to speed at the other end of the force velocity continuum. So that's been pretty helpful recently just to find out, one, where athletes are strong um, and two, where they're weak. So then we start to get really, really specific and precise with the the loads that we prescribe in training that's 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 very very interesting actually that now too i mean it's it's a question i've been getting lately like about this idea of constantly having tendo units on and and looking at the you know power output and we are where where is that cutoff point where you know well that rep actually isn't it isn't actually doing you any good anymore it's it's uh, i definitely think it's something that more and more coaches are going to start looking at is that sort of power output that's being displayed on, on, on every sort of lift, be it, be it an actual more heavy strength lift or even more of a speed strength or strength speed lift. Yeah, yeah well, you know, I wrote about that on my uh, blog recently. I had a, I had a guy who, um, he played uh, wing for Sydney Roosters. Big, big, strong guy. Like He was playing NRL when he was 18 years old. And he's, um, he's about 105 kilos on the wing. Big, strong guy. Okay, so we got cut off, uh, cut off there briefly, but uh, yeah, just just go, uh, continue on to where you were. You were you were talking about. Uh, we were talking about the Tendo unit power output, and you were going to talk about an athlete there at Wasps and his power clean. Yeah, so um, I was talking about 
Yeah, so, I mean, this, this guy was coming off of his, uh, his second ATL tear. And um, just prior to that, that second ATL tear, when he was sort of at the strongest, his back squat was about 160 to 170. Hmm. And his, uh, his power clean was 120 kilos. And like, personally, I don't like the Olympic lifts. Uh, but every now and then we would test them. And I knew he would be tested. So I obviously wanted to see that go up. And the way that we approached it was looking at the velocity of, or the average velocity of a power clean, and then trying to replicate that with other exercises in a similar pattern. So, um, you know, Louis, Louis Simmons has always said, is there anything special about the power clean other than you're training 60% of your deadlift as fast as possible? And that sort of got me to thinking, why don't we just use like a, a speed pull against bands just to eliminate some of that inherent deceleration and then use the tendo to decide the load that we're going to use. So we would actually use a load that elicited the same velocity as a, a max effort power clean. And then we would work with that um, for an appropriate volume, which we actually use the tendo to dictate. And uh, the, the end result of that was after about six weeks, um, no increase in, in one RM strength. We, we actually, we trained for it and we tested it, but he didn't get any increase there. Um, and no Olympic lifting, his power clean went up 10 kilos. So for me, that was uh, a massive reinforcer of how important uh, movement velocity is to specificity and when you select um, specialized prep and specialized developmental drills. Why, why aren't you a fan of Olympic lifting? Um, Oh, how have you got? <laughs> no, fire, fire, because I, I, I kind of know your answer. Like, and I just, I, I always love, I always love having these conversations, like with James Smith and Chad Wesley Smith, and yeah, I mean, those, those guys have been heavily influential on my thinking. As, as has Charlie Francis. You know, if Charlie Francis, Charlie Francis can get a guy to run the hundred meters in nine seven nine without ever doing Olympic lifts, that's good enough for me. Mm. And you know, to use James's analogy again, if we're trying to get the straight line A to B whilst incurring the minimum of unnecessary fatigue or, or time so that we free up as much time as possible so that we can train skill and tactics and so on, then to me, Olympic lifts are not a candidate to do that. Yeah. Um, you know, you, if, if you load them heavy, the chances are early on you're going to get the, uh, the sumo squat reverse curl that just makes your eyes water looking at it. If you're not, you're going to have to regress it to such a point where it's so light that your technique's perfect, you're not actually getting a training effect. And for me, where we've got uh, like an eight to 10 week preseason, that's a waste of time. So I just tell other coaches, said, while you're coaching, my guys will get a training effect. And for me, uh, the proof is there that you do not need to Olympic lift to, to increase um, running speed at you know, different velocities with and without resistance or jumping height and to me those are much more important uh, on field variables than how much does an athlete power clean yeah like I mean it, you you kind of you kind of touched on it there the question I always ask is like you know you know like when like how much load does there need to be on Olympic lift to get that training effect you know, like to, to, to get that stimulus to get uh, to get a train effect. That was the kind of question I was trying to ask James and Chad before. Like, 
like you know you, you get a lot of people saying oh we Olympic lift but you kind of look at them and it's, it's either two things it's, it's either horrible technique or else it's really lovely technique but there's fuck all load on the bar and you're kind of thinking well are they really getting any benefit from that like are they actually going to get any sort of training effect from that because the load is so light and then also you know I was saying to Chad and, and James but I said it to Chad and I kind of just related on to James when I interviewed James Smith that podcast will be probably up by this stage that this podcast comes out but uh I was saying, you know, you know, people say, oh, but Olympic lifting makes you explosive. And then Chad would flip it on the head and say, no, explosive people are explosive. That's why they do Olympic lifting. Kind of like Gary Tobbs with the whole, uh, with the, yeah. with, with the whole um, fucking, what's his name again? Uh, Lance Armstrong thing. You know, people say, oh, Lance Armstrong is fit because he cycles the bike. And then Gary Tobbs like, no, no, Lance Armstrong cycles the bike because he's fit. Yeah, you know, I, somebody commented, I, I put an article up about this and somebody commented on it and said, well, you know, I've, I've hung out with professional rugby players and I've also hung out with high-level Olympic lifters, yeah. and the Olympic lifters would out-squat them by 100 kilos in, you know, X, Y, Z. I said, well, you, you're comparing apples to oranges. That rugby player does 10 hours a week of, of rugby training. He needs all these different energy system demands. He's got a whole bunch of different skills. He's got travel. He's got games. He's got a short preseason. I'm sure if you took that guy and did nothing but Olympic lifting with him, six days a week he'd be as good as your guys yeah. but he's not yeah 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 like because you, you you often get that too and i remember uh you know it was a question on strengthcoach.com you know about lower body training and you know someone was saying oh like i think you can train the lower body every day with athletes and he goes look olympic lifters they train like six seven days a week and then like someone wrote back on yeah but that's all olympic lifters do <laughs> like your your yeah. your athletes are doing speed work and you know multi-directional work and then they have their their energy system requirements and then they have their sport specific skill and it's just like they have way more grown on their central nervous system or way more demands grown on their their you know their, their, their nervous system their biomotor qualities and their energy systems than the olympic lifter has now not not yeah. saying i'm not saying that i still do think olympic lifters really over train and under recover as it is anyway i think they i i sometimes i just i just it's it's more it's nearly more it's more tradition it's more tradition with them like they're they're just looking at the old Bulgarian models and you know I know there's Bulgarian Chinese emotion yeah. but they're just looking at them old models and thinking that more is better I, like for me looking on the outside in I, I think you know, Olympic lifting could be so much more better like it could be so much more quality over quantity they're just they just seem to like overtrain to hell so they do yeah well I tell you what the, the flip side to that is is that I. The first ever bit of work I did for athletes' performance was in China, and I went out to China and I was just gobsmacked at the the volume and the frequency that these guys trained with. So they would train like six hours a day on feet, not just six hours of work, six hours of actual training per day, six days a week. This is the Olympic lifters, now, yeah? No, this is rugby. <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, so that's like, oh god, you'd be you'd be lucky to get two and a half hours in a day, like in a really heavy week in a protein. Yeah. And these guys were doing 36 hours of training a week. Fuck. And yes, a lot of them were broken. And, you know, obviously they've got a genetic elite there, but it demonstrated to me that it's possible. And, um, you know, a real famous guy in Olympic lifting at the moment is, well, in USA Olympic lifting is John Brose. And his yeah. whole thing is you, you max out six days a week, two sessions a day, go as hard as you can, your body's lying to you and so on. And, you know, the biggest gains I've got in the last year of training, I train like that. <laughs> really? So it, yeah. You know, like, I I came back from Argentina last year and I just, I, 
I wanted a simple routine just to get back into it because of all the travel it threw me off. I was doing like a Shaco powerlifting routine three times a week. Yeah. Moderate intensity, nice high volume. And um, then I made a stupid bet and said I could put, uh, I think it was about 25 kilos on my front squat in six weeks. So I was like, right, pressure on. So I was like, well, this is, John Bro says it works. I'm going to give it a go. And I, I basically maxed out on my front squat six days a week. And um, I did it. So I've, I've not put that amount on any lift since I was like 18, 19. So it, it works. I would say the question is, at what cost? And also, is it appropriate for field sport athletes where you can't, um, you can't control every aspect of the training? Mm. Because that's the thing about Olympic weightlifting is it's so predictable. You can control every aspect. I think if you do that in a field sport athlete, you, you're going to break them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, those questions. Uh, and um, I was going to say, ask something else there. So, like, how, how did you feel your body held up to that? Like, so you maxed out. So you, you maxed out essentially 12 times a week as it was a twice a day for six days. I, I didn't do the twice a day just because I'm, I'm not that sad. Like, well, <laughs> I, I started off just by maxing out every single day like he prescribed it. And then by the end, I had to tweak it a little bit. So I would do, I would do maybe seven singles in that 90 to 100% range yeah. one day and then I would drop down to like 87% and I would do 12 reps there for singles and then on the third day I would try and break a new record and then I would repeat that within the week and I would do that for two weeks with um, eccentric emphasis then I did two weeks of pause squats like that and then the final two weeks I did squats against bands so I sort of I made him have a baby with Louis Simmons but for me, in that six weeks, it worked. Yeah, little, little so, bit of, it's like, like a little bit of triphasic going on there, an eccentric and isometric. Oh, yeah. and it. As well. You know, that, Cal's another, another guy I'm a massive fan of, and he's, I think he's a super, super intelligent guy about training. Yeah, he's, he's a good dude. But were you just building up to one RMs all that time, or did you, did, you, did, you, did you go near doubles or triples, or was it always building up to one RM every day? I was doing one just because I, I was constantly tired. <laughs> like uh, the, the the interesting thing on that like I mean if you go back to my interview with Louis Simmons is that you know I was saying to Louis you know like you get these coaches saying oh 5RM is less stressful on the system and Louis like that's ridiculous he's like like if he said he basically said if, if you if you build up to a 1RM of I don't know let's say fucking 500 pounds on a squat I'm just he didn't say that yeah. figure but I'm just saying let's just use that as an arbitrary figure for now 500 pounds you build up to a 1RM on that he's like if you build up to a 5RM on 400 pounds he's like you've actually squatted like uh what is that now my math is getting off uh, 800 uh, 1200 15 is it 1500 no is it 16 what is it eight? it's, it's 2000 pounds of volume on 400 so, pounds squat yeah, yeah. <laughs> people will know people will know how good my math was there yes you're five by four is 20 so yeah 200 pounds so he's like you you, you ended up squatting 200 pounds rather than just setting a, a personal record of 500 pounds once off like so like you know, yeah. even though you're saying you're maxing out every day, the volume was probably so, probably so low by the time you got into it. like you probably were only, you probably like you know when you build up to your max, you're probably only hitting maybe what three, four, five reps in around like ninety-seven to one hundred two percent. Were you like? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like when when you hear John Burroughs and Pat Mendes and that speak about it, their their rationality is that they're so tired all the time they don't actually have the strength 
<laughs> yeah, like so their so their output their output their output is actually so low. But then like yeah, I suppose you could argue then it's kinda of nearly garbage volume then to mean but like I suppose if you allow the recovery and super compensation and as well the thing with Olympic lifters is as we said before, they're not doing anything else. That is all they are essentially doing is that they're just Olympic lifters and then they're going home and they're eating. And the the, the other thing I've heard people say about Olympic lifters is that like, you know, the, the you know, for for the vast majority of the lifts, there is, there is very little eccentric sort of stress in in a lot of the lists you know bar maybe get under the bar in the snatch um yeah. so like uh, you know it, it, there isn't a, there isn't like a, a huge 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 amount of eccentric stress in the actual lists themselves and obviously there is some yeah. eccentric stress like the only eccentric stress they're really getting is through their the squatting that they do and yeah the, the, well you know that ties in again with with louis simmons like i think one of the reasons he's able to get away with doing so much training is that a lot of it is is wheelbarrows and sleds, which again, you've got a real more eccentric component there. Yeah, very true. Very, very true. Yeah, yeah, very true. Well, I, you had a, a YouTube uh, video series, you know, Ruby Strength Condition one, and I remember watching it and I was just like, yes! Someone who gets it, yes. <laughs> yeah, you know, it was just like because I, like I see, like I, I was at a few seminars uh, previously, and there was one I was at last year. It was, and actually, the one I was at last year was very good, but uh, you know, like the the, the coach. You know, he, he'd be talking all this great stuff in the weight room and, you know, energy systems. And then, like, when it came to sort of energy system out in the field, then, you know, he kind of, you could see, like, he had this sort of old school mentality that, you know, the pitch and the weight room were separate. And, you know, he, a lot of his conditioning stuff for rugby was very lactate sort of base and, you know, more glycolytic driven. And, you know, like, and, you know, I, I, I'm kind of like you. I tried to be t- trying to explain to people, you know, that, you know, rugby is like hurling, getting football, soccer is mainly a lactic aerobics. And so I always get my friends or, kind of colleagues come back and oh like you know like why does he do glycolytic training and you say you shouldn't and I'm like listen it's just you know because they, they kind of think it's a conflict and I'm just kind of like you know because coaches just do that because they think you know it's psychologically it's better for the team and it's uh, you know like they just it's just they don't, they, they, don't, they don't know any better but uh, but it was funny though because sorry I'll, I'll let you answer now in a second but like you know this coach he was like oh I never go over six reps in the weight room with the hamstring because the hamstring is fast which you know, fast with muscle. So he's. I never go over. I never used to go over six reps. But then, like, I was, then he go. But then when we go out to the pitch, we do all these glycolytic type stuff. And I'm just like, he doesn't see the conflict there of like, you know, I don't go over six reps and go into like glycolytic work through 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 using weight training. But I will bring the hamstring through loads of glycolytic work out on the field. You know, so like, yeah. I, you know, I, he didn't actually. So so many coaches don't realize that you can't separate the stuff from the weight room to the field like in that sort of way. But um. Just, just, just speak on yeah. Just the, 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 the you touched on the energy systems. We'll talk about energy system development now for like the likes of rugby, and then also what was really interesting in that video was you spoke with the small side of games, and you were like, I hate small side of games. They turn into you know they they end up being you know anaerobic threshold, glycolytic driven. You know, start eating into people's recovery, and you know they just they, you just felt they were very hard to sort of monitor and all that. So let's touch yeah. it. We'll touch into energy systems and small side of games. Sorry, that, that, I was talking there for about four minutes there. But. <laughs> well, I've talked a little bit on small side of games. But, um, with, with conditioning, my, my opinion is that obviously there are going to be times on the pitch where you're going to tap into that glycolytic energy system and you're going to suffer. Um, but my preference is rather than just teaching the boys how to learn how to suffer better, is maybe just teach them not how to suffer so much. And actually, if work can be performed by the aerobic system, 
it's in our interest to prepare the athletes so that they can meet those demands aerobically rather than anaerobically. Yeah, exactly. One, because they suffer less. Um, two, because it's more efficient. Three, because it's more repeatable. And four, because the, the aerobic energy system uh, feeds into the alactic system and resynthesizes it more quickly. So the, the two benefit one another, whereas with the glycolytic system, you've spoken before about how you're actually going to blunt alactic power and detract from aerobic development through um, creating a, a physiological environment which is harmful to mitochondria. Yeah, like so, I, go, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, so like with the, the glycolytic energy system to me is like, it's like having an overdraft in the bank. It's there if you need it. It's nice to have a big one, but you should not learn how to spend and survive within your overdraft. You should just learn how to make more money and be more responsible with how you spend your money. Yeah, like I mean, I think what, like what gets kind of younger coaches sort of confused was you know you know yourself there like ten years ago it was like don't do any aerobic work and then see aerobic was was sort of stigmatized to jogging like you know long slow distance you know don't do any aerobic work it makes you slow and all this sort of stuff we're really you know and I I will always reference Vladimir Ishtrin if you don't have block periodization get that book because there's a yeah. tape there's a table in that book about compatible and non-compatible qualities and that is worth yeah. that's worth the book alone I have it in a PowerPoint presentation and so alactic and aerobic qualities are very compatible they go well together what do not go well together is glycolytic and alactic qualities <laughs> yeah, well, well, actually, aerobic and lactate kind of, kind of, kind of, you know, they, they don't conflict as much. But lactate yeah. and a lactic do not go well together. So, in essence, all of this, you know, interval thirty seconds on, thirty seconds off, that that coaches or that people exposed would not make you slow. Actually, can and will make you slow because, as you yeah. said as well, as you said that I said before, and I got it from Dave Tanny really, is all that glycolytic yeah. work kills <laughs> kills ATP energy production. And then the the, yeah. you know, the second thing is that like the aerobic system obviously recovers the ATP system, but I always say to people, listen, you're trying to keep your athletes as aerobic as possible for as long as possible. You want to stay away from that anaerobic threshold. Now we do want to we want to bump up that anaerobic threshold. Yes, of course we do, because obviously if you have a higher anaerobic threshold, you can stay aerobic for longer. But it's trying to make people appreciate like that you want to stay as aerobic as possible for as long as possible because. Obviously, when you start typing into that glycolytic lactate, you know, very much glucose, you know, driven system, you know, you, it's just it's 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 energy well, it's it's well, energy supply is inf- is 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 very uh, short. So you're gonna fatigue earlier, gas out earlier, and then potentially, you know, as you get more fatigued, injury and mistakes go up. So performance will obviously start to take a dip. So the, the longer you can stay aerobic, the better. Exactly. <laughs> Sorry, I, 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 are you interviewing me or am I interviewing you here? <laughs> You're probably like, what, what, why am I even on this goddamn thing? So yeah, guys, I, I, I bring people on, so, so uh, it's kind of like, Kerry, I don't know about if you know this, but you ever know like when your family member is asking you advice on health or nutrition and then you tell them and sure they don't listen because it's coming from you? Uh, but but then, but then if they hear from a, a, a complete stranger like oh my god that's really interesting so like I nearly bring people on the podcast at this stage so like other people can hear like you know, the, you know I can deliver a message for you yeah exactly exactly you know so that it, it's it's all like uh, it's all like you know when someone says oh what about this and I hear listen just listen to episode 40 or 50 with, with Care there we covered that topic so I don't have to go <laughs> through it again you know 
Because because I did I did a, I did a whole podcast with T. S. Wiley, the, the you know the, the woman on sleep and circadian rhythm. So when people keep asking me why do I have to get rid of light bulbs and wear fucking blue light blocker glasses and you know you know not be looking at my iPhone at night and what's the story with circadian rhythms? I can just go listen to that podcast because I'm sick of having to repeat myself. <laughs> Is, is she the one who um, she developed those glasses for uh, getting over jet lag? I don't know if she developed the glasses. I don't, I don't know if she specifically... No, she didn't develop a pair of glasses, but there is glasses that... that uh, there's glasses... There, the glasses, they're essentially called blue light blockers, where they, they block out yeah. that, that specific light that comes from artificial light. And the whole the whole premise of that is that... the See, like, when it's nighttime and you turn on a light, you completely screw up your cortisol and melatonin axis, particularly. It's not really an axis, but, you know, cortisol and melatonin are essentially antagonists to one another. You want cortisol to be high first thing in the morning, and it's supposed to decrease as the day goes on, and vice versa with melatonin. But when you turn on a light, it turns off melatonin straight away and starts to increase your cortisol. So, essentially, you're just screwing up your whole hormonal regulation with regards to those two particular hormones as well. And then, like, that's why you start getting people in the morning, they just can't get out of bed, they need coffee and sugar to get going and whatnot, you know, so... Uh, well, I've got, a, I've got an app on my uh, my Mac which gets rid of blue light when the sunset goes down. Oh, that's very... Oh, it's, yeah, it's... Um, yeah, I have that too. It's... Uh, what's you call it, again? It's uh, like a flux, the flux system. Yeah, like, cool. yeah. Exactly, yeah. So your, your, your screen, tur- like, dims down the colour, like... Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm, um, in fact, it just happened just now. That's why I brought it up. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant, brilliant. Yeah. Uh, no, good, good stuff. So, guys, you know, even see, even even Kerr's looking after his circadian rhythms because you know it's how important it is. <laughs> uh, let me see. Any other sort of questions? Advice you'd give to, to, to young strength and conditioning coaches, or you know, or if you want to call them physical preparation coaches trying to get into the field, what what, what would your advice be to those coaches? Go and read a book called Never Eat Alone by a guy named Keith Ferrazzi. Uh, that book absolutely changed my career and it's probably changed my life for the better because I um, I came out of university in 2008 and uh, I got uh, I got a bunch of internships straight off the bat and I didn't get any of them because I was terrible and then it was another two years of applying for internships before I got my internship and then there was a, a few uh, a few jobs that I applied for, heard nothing back. There was another job I applied for where I actually got interviewed and it went to the coach's best friend. Mm. And then after three or four years, it finally sunk in that actually um, the, the secret to life is actually <laughs> you have to be known to get a job and you have to be liked to get a job. And yeah. I've, I've read a quote before that said, all things being equal, people want to hire their friends and all things not being equal, people still want to hire their friends. So if you're a new coach, make sure that people know you exist because you're not going to get a job or an internship unless people know you exist. And more importantly, they need to think that you're a likable person and that you can bring value to their organization. So you have to make them aware of all three of those things before you can even expect to get the internship or to get the job. Yeah, yeah. Uh, What, you know... Being a member, or so not a member, sorry, be, being a co-founder of the Irish Four Coaches Institute, you know, questions that we get an awful lot from like our members and just sort of kind of young coaches is, you know, uh, internships. You know, they're all saying, you know, oh, I'm looking to get an internship. Do you think I should do one? Um, I personally think internships are, are really excellent. And actually, the question we get an awful lot is, you know, should I should I go back and do a masters or should I get should I do an internship? And 
I think the, I don't want to speak for the rest of the guys in the ICI but I think the vast majority of us would always say get an internship get an internship so like what what would your viewpoints be on an internship yeah like I, I agree with you you people love to hire internally and if you're an intern doing a great job there's a higher chance that you're going to get there's a, a bigger chance that you're going to get hired than if you're just a a uh, recent master's graduate with no experience of that club or their systems or how they work. Yeah. And people complain a lot in the industry about internships being a barrier to entry because of the time commitment and the money it entails. And that's true and it's unfortunate. So when I did my internship, I had to lean heavily on my parents to get through it. And I'm immensely grateful to them for them helping me. Yeah. Um, but the fact is that they don't do internships for McDonald's or for Audi and that's because nobody wants to work there yeah. so if you are having to do an internship that's a sign that you're you're working in an industry that's very very popular and that's just the hoop that you're going to have to jump through to get to the industry so you you have to do an internship um, if you want to work in the industry unfortunately <laughs> Okay, you touched on you touched on you know your favorite book there. Um, just again, regard not not even training books, but just what what would be your top you know, you know top book or top books if you have if you have if you have uh, more than one, just for anyone listening there. So you already named one. Have you got any more? Oh, uh, so I never eat alone. How to win friends and influence people. That's a great one. Yeah. Uh, um, Outliers. Malcolm Gladwell just because that reinforces how much luck you need in life and how much you need to work. Oh, um, anything by Seth Godin. Um, Four Hour Work Week. I'm trying to think. You know, I, I try and read a lot of books like that just to give me a kick up the arse every now and then and just give me a new idea. So uh, a quote that I stole from Alan Cosgrove is, is never to ask what a book is going to cost you. Yeah. Ask what not reading the book is going to cost you. And if you can get one good, solid idea out of the book, it's probably paid for itself. So those, those few books that I just mentioned, they're, they're massive in the industry because there's a ton of brilliant unemployed coaches out there who don't have jobs because they're not well known enough or they're not well liked enough or they don't know how to work in an organization. And there are plenty of coaches who maybe aren't the best at their jobs but they're just good lads yeah yeah true <laughs> like, yeah very very true yeah you could probably say that you know there's a lot of ex-professionals out there who are strength and conditioning coaches and people get chips on their shoulders about them getting the job when they don't have the qualifications and there's there's a case there to be made but the fact is that those guys have worked within a professional system for 15-20 years they know the players and have the respect of the players and they've only got to snap their fingers and the players do it. And that is a, a massive part of coaching. So if you can ever get yourself to a position where you're that guy with the experience and you've got a degree, then you're you know, you're equipped to go all the way. Yeah, yeah. I mean I, I yeah, yeah, def I think I think that's what makes the likes of maybe the likes of Dan Baker so so sort of uh, unique, you know, that Dan has that sort of ac academic background, but yeah, he has that like real sort of work ethic, you know, get work done, uh, real yeah. real sort of, you know, people look up to him, respect him, he kind of, you know, he's, he's very much an outlier in that regard, whereas, you know, usually you kind of have one over the other, you kind of have the real scientific 
guy who you know wouldn't be as much hands-on or in the trenches then you have the real in the trenches coach who maybe a lot of people respect but maybe you know if you were to look at his methods scientifically they mightn't be the best so it's kind of like dan seems to have the best there at both worlds but what about uh just because uh, you know you know yourself you, you've been a young strength coach i've been a young strength coach and you know it, it's so funny how how like you do mature like in that when you're young, you get all these coaches saying, you know, read, yeah, read, read you know, you got to read uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People, read Brian Tracy goals, read this, read that. And then when you're a young coach, you're like, I don't care about that. Just give me training books. Just give me training books. Yeah. You, yeah. Know, you know yourself. So, but just, just, just for like the young kids there, who are the young kids, I say, but the young coaches, like what, what will be maybe just one or two top training books? We already mentioned Joel's book, which I always recommend, Ultimate MMA Condition. But what else training wise? Maybe more so for the beginner getting into the field. Uh, uh, if you're a real beginner, I don't think you can go wrong with uh, Starting Strength by Mark Rippertone. Yeah. And also, it's it's not perfect, it's a bit old, but Essential to Strength and Conditioning by Vichal and Earl. Yeah. Um, just because it, it covers so much, it's a big, thick book, you, you get a lot of uh, a lot of value for the money that you spend, and it sort of, it bridges the theoretical and the practical quite well. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Uh courses seminars what have been your top courses and seminars you've been to over the last number of years there is a seminar um, that a friend of mine Jada Mayo runs out in Richmond Virginia every year it's oh, called this... the Central Virginia Sports Performance Seminar have you actually gone to those I've gone to those I went two years in a row and this year I couldn't go because I had work but I'm, I'm definitely going next year so now, just, 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 just for the listeners he, he, he puts all those on DVD and online and I have I have two of them and they're excellent and Jay DeMeo is a, a gent he is he's a, a top top guy he's, he's extremely generous with his time so you know this this ties up a few things this is probably the example of networking right so in 2010, I wrote an article about what to do if you don't have a prowler, and basically it was the clever idea of you just switch off the treadmill and push it as fast as you can. And then I uploaded that to Elite FTS, and about a year later, this guy emailed me from Muscle and Fitness and said, this is a great article, can we interview you for it? And I said, yeah, sure. Then at the end of it, I said, I'm thinking of doing the Athletes Performance Mentorship courses, do you know anything about them? And uh, he said, well, I, I don't, but I have a friend who does. I emailed this friend back and forth. We're talking about um, dope methods of conditioning as well. And he said, look, if you're so interested, just come over to Virginia in three months and I'll take you to a, a seminar with me and my friend. So I just said, yeah. And this is when I didn't have a lot of money. I flew out to New York. And he picked me up at five in the morning, a complete stranger. And then we spent three days in a hotel room together <laughs> uh, going to this seminar. And that was how I met Jay. And then I came back the year after and brought um, three of my interns and assistants with me. And Jay was so grateful that um, I brought people to the seminar. He invited me to hang out at the end for five extra days with uh, Dr. Michael Yetis and Dr. Natalia Vershansky. And then afterwards, we went on a a road trip to to Westside Barbell, Elite FPS, went to Caldita Seminar. So that, I think, (laughs) demonstrates the value of... um, email people being known and uh, seize opportunities so that's just just from that one email that's what's happened 
Yeah, I mean that's it, it's funny you say that too because uh, anyone listening to this who, who listens to the to the ISCI podcast too will also know that uh, when Mike Boyle was over there, uh, there, there's a guy called James Collins and, and James is from Ireland and he he's applied to do a master's in Springfield College you now he and you know he actually got it but at the time when Mike came over he hadn't heard back yet and I introduced him to Mike and said oh Mike here's James and you know James has applied to Springfield and blah 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 and. Do you know, so Mike goes, oh, James, email me and I'll see what I can do. So James emailed Mike and then Mike obviously sent some stuff to Springfield and then James got in. So just the same sort of idea about, like, you know, if you never ask, you'll never know. Like, so, like, I mean, yeah. do you know, you know, James, I met James actually in an AP course and, you know, he was just, a, I got on great with him. He's a lovely young fella, sound, great laugh. And then when he told me he was applying to Springfield, I, I, you know, I was like, here, let's, let's meet Mike. Mike might be able to do something. So, yeah, it's yeah. just it's it's just about you know like it's funny you say that just the email because like see see what you now on this podcast or a podcast people always go to me oh how do you get like these people on the podcast I'm like I emailed them <laughs> or you know so like you know it's just like just ask like you know what's the worst thing that can happen they might say oh sorry I haven't got the time or something like that but yeah, yeah like that, yeah. that 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 story is amazing holy crap because I actually I remember Jay being on to me before Jay DeMayon he's like oh come over to Virginia I'll look after you and all but I was just like I just hadn't got the time or probably the money at the time because it was a few years ago but uh, yeah. I definitely want to get over well, it I, I, I got there I flew into New York and then about 5 o'clock the next morning I was like what the fuck am I doing here like I got into the car <laughs> Just to go off topic there, uh, something that we I wanted to actually touch on was was actually just just because you you, can't, you said SVP there again for rugby and small sided games came back to my head. You were saying that you've changed your, or you've lightened up on small sided games. Well, just go into that for for a minute. Yeah, so the the criticism that I have and had of small sided games is that with you know energy system development, I I try and consider the the energy systems as like looking under the bonnet of the car, you have all these different engine components and that somewhere in that engine there's a weak link which is stopping your engine from performing as, as good as possible. Yeah. So just like a mechanic isn't going to waste his time looking at other bits in the engine, he's going to focus on that weak link and attack it to bring the, the engine up as a whole. That's how I prefer to do things with conditioning. So we know that 
the training that we do determines the the internal physiological environment and that determines cellular signaling which determines adaptation which determines performance so the more precise um, conditions you can create and maintain in training the more signaling you get the more adaptation you get and the more improvement in performance you get mm. now if you contrast that to small-sided games which are basically organized chaos that's not good at getting that job done yeah, but yeah. What, what they are can be good for is they're a, they're a bringing together of technical, tactical, and physiological, and to an extent psychological preparation. So yeah. if you look at like the the block model by Isserin, the realization phase is where all of the elements get brought together and adaptations are realized in a sport specific context. So in terms of you know, realization of sport performance, I think there is. Now there is a value for small-sided games, but I would still only sparingly. Yeah, and you'd only use them kind of in that realization sort of phase as well. Like whereas you might get guys using them all the time for nearly every block of training. Yeah, yeah to me, they're they're not necessarily a tool to develop fitness. They're a tool to learn how to express it in the best context. Yeah, very good, very good. Yeah, I like, I like that answer. Um, I was going to say something else here. There was. Any so we we actually we, we spoke about books. Uh, what about your top DVDs? Do you know what I don't actually have. I don't have. I've got um, well Jay's DVDs definitely, and then Chuck Francis DVDs. Yeah, and for for anyone listening, I I will put a link up to uh, to to the Central Sports Virginia stuff and. Um, and I can also put a link up to Charlie to Charlie Francis' website. It's funny, uh, I'm in the process now of actually buying all the Charlie Francis' stuff because it's just so good that I just want it all. So. Yeah, and it's, it, the good thing about that stuff is it's easily digestible. Yeah, yeah, big time. And if you, yeah. um, if you look at the Vancouver seminar, I think it is, from like 2001, if you look at the front row, you can see James Smith in that seminar. <laughs> James Smith, the man, the tinker. Yeah. So just... Something else I just want to ask on, uh, just with regards to your program design and so your program design and sort of your your periodization models, um, maybe just you know t- touch into that and also so let's just like I mean to be honest, program design I I would imagine with you anyway like like I I did a seminar actually last week on program design and periodization like and I was trying to tell the you know the attendees not trying to I did tell the attendees I was like I was like program design you know is is like it's like. It's, it, uh, it's that's just how you structure a program. People like always kind of confuse program design and periodization. Like they're different things. Program design is how you structure the program. Periodization is yeah. basically the, you know the, the organization of the stressors and what what you're trying to achieve. But like you know, and like I even said to him, I was like, "What's the first thing we do?" And everyone's like, "Uh, a war up." I was like, "Yeah, sometimes a war up." And I was like, "Usually, yeah. usually what comes next?" Then and they're like, "Uh, like you know, would you would you put conditioning or would you put power work next?" And they're like, "Power work." I'm like, yeah. And then what would be after that? And they were like, mm, strength. And I was like, yeah. And then what would be after that? So, do you know, and I was like, if you, if you look at any, like, you know, Charlie Francis, Oliver Meal, you know, you know, like, they all, the structure was all pretty similar. Like, but anyway, listen, again, I'm, I'm digressing here. Just maybe touch on, like, your, how you design a program, your program design, and then also maybe touch into some periodization. Well, this is, this is where I really like the, the athletes' performance stuff because they tend to have, uh, a template for any eventuality. So, you know, if you're going to train six days a week, they're going to go upper, lower, recovery, upper, lower, recovery, day off. If you're going to train four days a week, it might be upper, lower, upper, lower. It's three. It's going to be three whole body sessions. 
if it's three days a week where you're going to have to train on two consecutive days, it would be upper, lower, whole body. If it's two, it's going to be whole body, whole body. If it's one, it's going to be whole body. And then breaking that down, you've, you've got patterns within the body. So you, obviously you've got your upper pull, upper push, um, vertical, horizontal. You've got your lower body push, lower body pull. Um, you can have unilateral, bilateral, hip dominant, knee dominant. Um, within the torso, you've got prevention of movement in three different planes. You've got your propulsive rotary work. Um, and then you've got your smaller stuff, so little accessory lifts, rehab stuff. So they all figure with the program, and the, the training split that you're going to use will dictate where they fall in the program. Did and you, then, did you, did you, sorry, did you say on a three day they, they'll do an upper lower total or three totals or both? So that depends whether if, if you're going to train, for example, like a Monday, Wednesday, Friday split, there's sufficient recovery there for you to do three whole body sessions. Yeah, yeah. Um, but in you know, for example, Monday, if it was a Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, or Monday, Tuesday, Friday, yeah, yeah. yeah. So if, if you know, rugby is a good example. For some for some clubs, Wednesday is non-negotiable. They have Wednesday off, so you're going to train Monday, Tuesday, Thursday. You don't want to train weights on a Friday if you've got a Saturday game. So Very what sure. happens is you have upper, lower, and whole body. Um, and then within that, I, I try and do the, the sort of the AP model, which is just to organize within blocks. So I have my big, long, extensive warm-up, which it begins with soft tissue stuff, moves into floor-based mobility, into activation and proprioception work, into dynamic flexibility. Sometimes I'll do some Buddy Morris stuff, like a, a GP circuit and injury prevention circuit. And the rationale for that is just, it's like chopping up vegetables to put it in kids' food. If, if you put it in the warm-up, they don't consider it extra work. Yeah. And um, from there, exactly what you said. Highest force, highest speed training goes first. Lowest force, lowest speed with the most fatigue goes last. So yeah, 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 that's yeah, going to yeah. be a power block followed by a, a heavier strength block, a lighter strength block, and then some accessory and rehab lifts. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah, like I mean, yeah, it's pretty pretty uh, self-explanatory but with regards then to the organisation of training so that I suppose if you want to call it periodization, what 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 are, yeah. your, what, what, what are your, your points on that or what, what what's your so, take on that I suppose again it's going to depend on, on the athlete situation but I'll let you answer that yeah I think with, with the team sports you, you almost have to train everything year round just because you know sometimes you'll get an event that will happen that will just take out a week of training and then before you know it, if you're using a traditional linear periodization plan, that's throwing the entire plan out of whack. And yeah. um, you know, sometimes the rugby coach is going to throw his toys out the pram and say, right, we're doing rugby day today. So if you, you know, if you miss a session or what have you, it just you have to train everything. Yeah. What I do think though is you can't train everything with equal emphasis because obviously, as the training age increases, the need for additional stimulation to get further adaptation goes up. Yeah, so like you, in, in other words, you're you're, you're to, you know to, to get further, to get to get sort of further mastery, you're trying to have to saturate their most lacking biomotor quality. Bingo. Yeah. So it's training is like having a wife. When you're first with your wife and she asks you to do the washing up, you do it straight away. When you've been married for twenty years, she's got to shout at you and slap you around the head to get you to do the smallest thing. And yeah, training's yeah. like that. The longer you do it, the harder you have to shout. Yeah. And. Um, the way I try and do it is, it's sort of borrowed from, you know, traditional linear periodization and the block stuff, it's 
and yeah. then a bit of Charlie Francis. So the guys will train everything throughout the year, but we, we set volumes and intensities as a retention load and a developmental load. Yes, yes, so yes. research that we can, we can retain strength with you know, 60% of 1RM, maybe three sets of five, as so long as you bring the bar as fast as possible. Yeah. So developmental load, that might be seven to 10 reps at 90 to 100% of 1RM. So there's a big difference there. So whichever ability that we're going to emphasize within that block, the volume and intensity is going to change accordingly and everything else is going to drop down to a, a retention load. And I tend to organize in four phases. So the, the first phase that we'll do is like a, a real general preparation block, attacking weaknesses, yeah. and just trying to, to make sure that what comes after is not going to break them and they can handle it. So after that, we start introducing maximal loading for development of maximal strength, speed, power, and so on. In the third block, we're starting to look at more positional abilities. So are there dominant motor patterns on the field that they have to perform? And then we'll start to introduce SPP exercises accordingly, continuing with, with maximal power and speed. And then in the fourth block, which is the realization, I basically bring everything right back down, keep a thread of everything in there, but then maximize the amount of rugby that we're performing so that we're we're realizing those adaptations on field. Yeah, it's 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 uh it's it's you know, like problem time periodization is, is something I just I love just talking about. Like something interesting there on the block. I don't know if you heard about this, but in apparently in I, I, it was from Maladin I heard it's, you know you, you mentioned Maladin earlier on um, Maladin Janovic from what's it called Contemporary what's his blog called again Contemporary Contemporary yeah yeah so uh, I, I'm sorry now if I butchered the second name but Maladin anyway um, he actually said that linear periodization was a misinterpretation of block periodization by Westerners so like they would see like you know, apparently they saw like block periodization. So like, you know, oh, they saw a block of, you know, one block of training that was dedicated to sort of work capacity, anatomical yeah. adaptation or hypertrophy. And they're like, oh, they're just doing hypertrophy for like, you know, that's all they're doing for like four months. It's like, no, they're actually emphasizing or saturating that quality while they were, yeah. while they were still maintaining other qualities or, you know, keeping a maintenance load or an introduction load so that it fed into the next block, you know, you know as Verkis Jansky says, one block has to feed into your block or it has to support the, 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 the you know, the, the succeeding block. But, it, like, it, it's it's interesting, too, periodization. I, I want to get your thought on this, too, that, yeah, I, I'm very similar, very, very similar to you in that it's kind of like modified block periodization, what we do, you know, where, where I always say, listen, I train every single quality throughout every block it's just that I emphasize a quality while I either maintain or introduce other qualities uh, um, so I always say maintain or introduce because if it's a beginner you're, you're, you're introducing other qualities while you're emphasizing yeah. something with a beginner or with, 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 sorry not beginner but with then with someone who's more advanced you're, you're emphasizing quality while maintaining other qualities so like you said there with strength 60% 3 sets of 5 it's enough to maintain but it's not a developmental load which you know I love I, you put that you, you phrase that nicely but like what I kind of see is uh, like and again I want to get your viewpoint on this is you'll often see people saying oh yeah block one is like this kind of work capacity block and my sort of thought process now is right while I do agree with that I'm like if I have an athlete who already has savage work capacity I'm like why would I waste my time doing that when yeah. like when, when like you know okay like his work capacity is savage so like you know this guy yo-yo test resting heart rate 
just has the work engine of, a, of like just you know savage engine but yet like okay strength needs to be developed blah, blah, blah. and let's just say again i only have eight weeks my thing this this is the way i work i test by like biomark what now uh, nutrition analysis lifestyle uh and fms aside they're given you're already going to look at that but yeah. then when we get into performance testing and i've let's say I've only eight weeks my whole thing on performance testing is listen i want an objective marker for every one of these biomark qualities and then I want to see which one of these biomoral qualities is the most lacking biomoral quality. And and given its position on this kind of the athletic development hierarchy, so for instance, if someone was lacking in strength and was lacking in elastic reactive strength, I obviously wouldn't go straight to elastic reactive strength because strength is obviously yeah. is a supporting factor to that. But anyway, what I'm trying to say is I always feel, or I, and maybe it's a misinterpretation on my part, I always feel... Uh, coaches are like, oh, we always do a, a you know a work capacity block, then we always do a strength block and a power block, and then this block. And I'm kind of like, but like, what if you're actually well, what, same as you? Like, the I try and give myself options. Yeah. So it, I I call it like my block one. In block one, it it may be that we're doing in the strength block, we're doing sub maximal strength, or it may be that we're doing maximal strength. Yeah. Or accessory block, we might be doing hypertrophy or we might be doing local muscular endurance yeah, like I bring it back yeah. again who benched 180 when he was 18 yeah 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 does yeah, that yeah. does that kid need to work on his maximum strength no. does he need to work on hypertrophy no, no. Like, in that block you can work on other stuff yeah, yeah. No, no, uh, listen and it wasn't sorry my, my question wasn't even kind of question it was kind of for the listeners to understand this more that and you just you just answered the question just there like that that's what i mean like you know i because the, the reason why i'm actually sorry is because like me as a young coach i used to watch like i used to think oh you have to constantly go through the cycle again you have to go back and do work capacity and then strength you know what i mean like where like yeah. when, when it was kind of, it was joel's work really that did it because i interviewed joel and i was like joel you know if someone that has sufficient sufficient quality of this like would you go back and like joel's like why would you do that like just think about it logically like why would you spend more time on that if it's already where it needs to be like but i get the, the next question the next question really that needs to be answered is like like what what are actual good markers for these certain qualities because everyone is so like you know like how strong is strong how explosive is explosive how elastic is elastic do you know what i mean like how yeah. fa- how fast is fast like you know we, we still don't really know we're kind of and then it, it depends on the sport too because obviously like you know a two to- a, a twice body weight squat for a Gaelic football player soccer rugby player is sufficient for their sport but for a powerlifter it's shit like so like it, yeah. it, 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 it depends too on where you're coming from but uh but oh, yeah sorry go, go ahead Sonny Bill Williams maximum bench press is 140 kilos <laughs> and his squat is probably 150 kilos so yeah. You know, if the best player in the world is putting up those numbers, that tells you that if, if you are sufficiently skillful and tactically aware, you can reach the highest level of the game with those numbers. Yeah, so uh, yeah, yeah. you have to look at those numbers in the context of the different areas still, but you know, you don't have to be a, a world, world class strength athlete to, to play elite level rugby. Yeah, yeah, true, definitely true, yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But sorry, just to finish off what I was saying. So, like, anyway, the way I the way I program or, or manage now just myself, just to give my take. Like, I'm very similar, very similar to care to care there for the listeners. Listen, like you know, in that, you know, I kind of use like it's you know always training quality, saturated quality, sort of block periodization type stuff. Um, but like I as I've and people have heard me speak before, like I will test and then from that performance testing that will tell me what is what is this individual's most lacking biomark quality that needs to be focused on immediately. Um, so you know, be it work capacity, be it maximum strength, be it explosive strength, elastic reactive strength. An interesting question I've actually wanted to get your take on too is elastic with elastic reactive strength. 
Have you seen any good testing protocols for? Okay, I know there's the, the four jump tests. I know there's like the reactive strength index. But what I find with the reactive strength index is there's no consideration of body weight. So, for instance, if I'm 110 kilo male and I step off a box into a vertical jump, and it gives me that ground contact time, obviously my ground contact time is going to be longer because I have more mass to move than someone who's of 80 kilos. So, like, do do you know of any good sort of stuff on there, elastic reactive stuff, and what what's your take on it? No, <laughs> no is the answer. Like I've I've seen big guys do well on the RSI. There was a there was a proper wasp who played for Samoa. It was 130 kilos and his RSI was uh, 2.7. Yeah, which was very good. But you know, I think the, the best in the squad there was Christian Wade, who was 3.2, 3.3, which is ridiculous. Um, but I think it's with the plyometrics. The, the time that I spent with um, Natalia Verkashansky, it just it explained it to me more, but then obviously it raised even more questions. So within the context of uh, elastic strength, you're not only looking at um, the elastic qualities of the tissues themselves, you're looking at the timing of your movement, because obviously when you choose to contract your muscles, it will affect the elasticity of your tissues. Yeah. And you're also looking at the the potentiation of the stretch reflex, and you're looking at your ability to execute a movement efficiently, which is going to increase power output and elasticity. Yeah. So, I think you know, even within those tests, you you're going to still need to distinguish further and um, amongst that what the real real culprit is, and that's something that I'm still learning. I don't have the answer there, but the the questions are there in my mind. Yeah, like it's it's just interesting, you know, to, 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 to get more of a I suppose more of a sort of objective way to measure I mean, because strength is so cut and dry, it's just like, you know, lift that weight, did he lift it? What's the percentage relative to his body weight, you know what I mean? Because I suppose and again, because strength isn't isn't limited to a time it's there's no time constraint on strength, you know what I mean? It's just it doesn't matter if it, if it took you eight seconds or one second to lift that thing, but when it gets into sort of rate of force development and power and whatnot like I like and you know it's funny too. I, I was at a Franz Bosch seminar there now. What are we now? May about three weeks ago. And God, Franz is so far removed. This is why I actually want to get in touch with Nick Winkleman because you know Nick is from a a, a a sort of background very similar to me and you. You know a, a sort of you know at least performance exos as they are now and you know Mike Boyle sort of you know Mike and and exos would be the same with regards to kind of program design philosophy, but you know and certain other things but like Franz is just so far removed how he teaches motor learning and all that and you know like yeah. Fra- 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 Franz is, have you ever heard Franz speak have you uh, I've seen him speak on video I've not seen him speak in person but I, I know a lot of people have seen him speak and like I, I we've spoken a bit about this there's some ideas that raise an eyebrow for me but if you know I'm not a professor in sports biomechanics and he is so i that's someone I would like to see speak. Yeah, it's just it's just interesting. Like for instance, you know, he's very kind of averse to traditional strength training for for optimal speed development. So like squatting and deadlifting, or you know, he just with regards to squat, he's just like you know this kind of going down slow and controlled and up fast. He just believes it's teaching sort of the very sort of very wrong sort of things or ingraining sort of wrong kind of habits. And he talks about like muscle slack and you know uh, essentially like he, he's like the actual length of your rec fam hamstring and calf muscles never actually change at any part in the in the 
in the running cycle you know so like you know where people go oh it's concentrically lengthening and it's eccentrically lengthening he's like they're not because the fact that they're biotickler if one joint is, is shortening and, and, and if it's shortening at one end and lengthening at the other he's like the actual length tension relationship staying the same so you know and I've, yeah. heard, I, I've heard Nick speak about this I've heard other people speak about this that you know absolute speed development it, you know it, it is supported by maximum strength and elastic reactive strength and then if you don't have that maximum strength to support that elastic reactive strength that's when you start you start seeing people spend too long on the ground they sag into their muscular system rather than relying on those elastic reactive properties of the muscle and obviously the tendons because that's essentially what absolute speed run is you know this too like absolute speed run is really is really reliant like you're transferring all that energy into the tendon while the muscle is saying isometrically contracted to be able to hold and withstand that force and like that yeah. that's essentially what like you know pulling your hamstring is too you know so, you know it just you know, or like in sprinting, you know, the hamstring goes. It's just like you, you, you were, you were, your muscular system was taking on too much of the load, and you weren't transferring the energy out into elastic reactive properties, or you know, as what they're called, serious elastic components and parallelastic components, and out into the tendons. But it's just, it was just, you know, he so you like the stuff he does to it's so far removed. You know, like uh, you know, if you walked in, it's all like it, it is. And like I don't mean this offensively, but from 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 where I'm currently at, and they're like nearly like circus type act exercises. They're just, yeah. like, they're, they're, they're just, they're just crazy looking. But again, he's just, he's so far. Like I, I've tried to explain this to a few people. Like say, like myself and yourself seem to have very similar sort of coaching philosophies, a coaching paradigm. And me and you, you, you know yourself, you kind of take things from other people and put it into it in your coaching philosophy. Like I think with Franz, you'd have to nearly get rid of your whole philosophy, like just draw the whole pyramid out, the whole paradigm. And then to, to be, because like you can't look at Franz and stuff. Like, what, you know, where, where, where can I, where can I, where can I put this? You know. So that uh, the dog, the, the dog is back again. The sausage dog. The sausage dog. But like, so what I'm trying, you know, I, I don't think Franz stuff is the kind of stuff you can just like take and put into your sort of coaching philosophy. I think you nearly have to nearly change your philosophy a little bit to your degree. But it's just very interesting stuff. It, you know, it is like and. Uh, but essentially, like he 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 was saying in his talks too that he's gotten rid of counter movements. He doesn't want any counter movements, so he puts people like in really shallow hip angles, and he just wants them to just to like you know pop from that sort of position and just interesting stuff like you know. Definitely, yeah. It's with anything, there is stuff there you can take, and if you don't like it, you don't have to use it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true enough. Like like even like you know like after I even heard him you know saying you know he doesn't believe in you know kind of strength work like traditional sort of strength work you know because he you know he doesn't. I think he's completely averse to hypertrophy. Like I, you know, you still have to take a step back and go. Listen, I know a lot of people who all they ever did was heavy strength work, and they were very fast and explosive at the same time. You know, but they, yeah. he, he, listen, he, he definitely has some some. He definitely has some good stuff, and he's the type of guy I think that you need to see three, four, five times, and probably even spend some time with to fully grasp where exactly he's coming from. You know, because I really I, currently. I'm I'm 100 not in a position to criticize any of his work because I just don't fully understand it or grasp it. Like that that's a huge problem not not only within our industry but just in life in general. People give their opinions on things and you're like your opinions or or criticisms are based off completely false assumptions. You, you're not under, <laughs> you're not understanding what you're what you're you're not understanding the the subject at hand here. Like again I. Like I don't want to fucking beat a dead horse here, but the FMS is one. Like people are all like, oh, the the F it's not sport specific and uh, it doesn't measure core strength and blah blah blah. I'm like, it doesn't. It's not meant for any of that stuff. Like your criticisms, <laughs> your criticisms are based off false assumptions. So just like your your criticisms are null and void from the get go. So it's, yeah. so I, I don't want to be here go well, Franz and stuff. Because to be honest, listen, 
I don't fully understand the man's mind, like, but you can definitely tell he comes across as a, as a genius, all right. But uh, anyway, yeah. again, I'm digressing here, getting off topic a little bit. But no, I just, I just, uh, I wanted to get your take there on, on that elastic reactive uh, capability type stuff. But just uh, anyway, back to problem design. Um, if you need to, if you need to go, like, um, you let me know. Uh, I'm good, man. Let's keep going. Yeah, yeah. This is this turned into a whopper. I think we're now in 15 minutes now, so we'll wrap up anyway soon. But uh, I love these type of podcasts. Like they're just more like conversations, like and you know, rather than sort of, you know, there wasn't it wasn't too uh, set planned. Like, but uh, I was gonna say something there. Yeah, I I was at a Christian Thibodeau seminar there, um, not last week, weekend before, and good good friend of mine, like put on my really good friends of mine, uh, uh, the guys out in Black Rock. So Jason Kane, Joey Shockey, Sean McGarry said it. Better just mention the guys here on this. Re- really great guys, top guys. Anyone out around the Black Rock area in Dublin, they're the guys to go train with. Um, or anyone in Dublin for that instance particularly if you're looking for kettlebells these guys are master RKCs anyway that's enough of a plug for them uh, but Christian Christian spoke about like the Russian Bulgarian and Chinese weightlifting systems and do you know he got me thinking in that so we have let's say in, in our program we have our primary lift yeah you know your, your primary strength lift so let, let's let's say it's a squat and a lower body day a bench and upper body day just, just, just for that he, he spoke about then like exercises then that support your weak link in those exercises so like you know in the squat be it like low back or whatever it is uh, in the bench press be it your lats or whatever it is too and I was talking to another friend of mine at that seminar Leo Leo Tiernan and Leo I don't know if you know Leo Leo's, Leo's an AP guy he interned at Exos he actually works in our, in Dublin here in Core Performance and he ta- he said to me, "Oh, Dave Tate recently did a video on this for Elite FTS about supplementary and uh, you know, and assistance work." And I went yeah. home. I went home and I watched that. And between listening to Christian Thibodeau and Dave Tate, I, you know, I was like, "I know nothing." Again, yet I know nothing. You know, like because I, I, in my head, I'm thinking like, "Oh, my program, you know, it'll be the main lift." You know, so uh, you know, strength training to me is like you know your main lift, your assistance work, and you know within those, you're kind of looking at horizontal push pull, vertical push pull, hip down, knee down. But what kind of Dave Tate was saying was that, listen, like, and of course, Dave is a powerlifter, but he, he, he said it in such a way that you can translate this to sport. Let, let's just say we are using things like squats, uh, bench, squat, deadlift, bench, military press, whatever, as our sort of main strength list to increase an athlete's strength to therefore increase motor potential, okay? But Dave, Dave was then saying, right, no one then looks beyond that and, like, what supports the squat? And then not only what supports the squat in supplementary work, but the auxiliary work you do what supports that you must look at the video it's very good so like it's, yeah. it's kind of changed my thought process a little bit in that you know it's kind of like I got into this comfort zone of you know okay we're gonna we're gonna squat that's our knee dominant and then we'll do a, a push pull and then we'll do a, a hip dominant and maybe an extra you know pull exercise here or something like that you know what I mean and then this day yeah. we'll, we'll do a bench variation and then we'll do a knee dominant pull a hip dominant push and then this day we'll do maybe a weighted chin and we'll do you know again another knee dominant and a pull and another sort of maybe knee dominant pull so it's a posterior chain like a leg curl and then a, another push exercise and you're kind of just going you know looking at those categories whereas you know them guys are kind of saying no if if squat bench and deadlift are your core strength list what is supporting those for each individual like kind of person so exactly. what what yeah. like what, what what would your thought process be on that type of thing same thing like this is this is where uh, dr yeses is really really good because you know, for for powerlifters and for Olympic weightlifters, the the lifts are their competition exercise. Yeah. So, exercises 
or you know supplementary exercises which target weaknesses within those are specialized developmental exercises yeah so dr yeses takes those same principles and just applies them to spp movements in in other sports so let's say for example you're you're a sprinter and you've got incomplete hip extension when you when you run you're probably going to target uh, an spp drill which targets uh, hip extension with a high degree of dynamic correspondence to sprinting yeah. or if your front side mechanic support it might be something which trains your your hip flexors yeah, yeah, and so yeah. on it's just the the analogy for that i really really like was one that i got from louis simmons which was he said you know if if i go over to your house and you beat me up um should i go back to your house tomorrow and ask to fight you again and the obvious answer is no because you're going to get beaten up again and again and the reason you're going to get beaten up is because you've got these weaknesses that I keep exploiting. The way that you're going to beat me up is if you look at your technique and break it down and find out where you're weak. Yeah. And then you improve those qualities. And then you improve the qualities that underpin that and underpin that and underpin that. Yeah. And then you put all of those pieces back together and then you go to my house and challenge me to a fight. And that's what sport training is. You look at where the athlete's weak, you break it down, you train up the bits, you add another layer on top, you go again and again, you put the pieces together and then you you put it into context yeah 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 no, so it, it it just yeah brilliant like and it just got me to because I, I i could understand explaining what i said just there you know about you know supporting you know supplementary work sports or squat and blah blah, blah. and people go oh, well like they're power lifters that's their sport but uh, you know again we're using like things like squat deadlift bench variations to increase a you know to increase a biomore quality maximum strength to increase overall you know to, to increase the maximum strength as a more quality and eventually increase the athlete's overall more potential more more potential more force output more force more force output the more you know if you have more force output you can you can therefore execute your sport specific skill at a higher force output but it just get you know it just made me think a little more that you know where it's like i'm kind of like oh we'll just do you know we'll just do the squat there you know five sets of three and then you know b1 and b2 i will do an upper body push pull horizontal horizontal you know a horizontal push pull and then you know c1 c2 will do a, like a posterior chain and maybe an additional uh, horizontal horizontal pull. Do you know where you're, you're just kind of filling in these blanks and then where you're not kind of stepping back on like what like what am i actually achieving here like how, like so like they, they, like dave tape put it really good too and is he goes he goes okay so you're doing glute ham raises glute ham raises good good exercise good posterior chain exercise he's like how do you know they're carrying over like how, how do you know they're carrying over into like first of all what are you hoping they'll carry over to and then second of all how do you know that they are like so you know what what he just it just made me think like you know holy shit like i'm like in my mind i'm here thinking oh, i'm just ticking the boxes here you know you know knee dominant horizontal push pull vertical push pull hip dominant you know what i mean like throughout throughout like yeah. a say a three-day program and like well you know i spoke to the, uh, a strength and conditioning coach in the afl the other day yeah. he used to work for um i think it was northern ireland institute of sport he said he recorded every single day vertical jump data for the girls that they had there. Really? These girls did nothing but Olympic lifts and heavy weights. And for them, jumps didn't increase. Didn't increase? And didn't increase. Ah. So for him, the limiting factor for their ability to jump was Strength. the fact they just didn't have the coordination or the, the timing to jump properly yet. So for them, that was the, the bottom level of the pyramid. Like, like the, 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 the one thing I will say to that is like, you know, you'd like to see their Olympic, like, you know, how were they Olympic lifting? What were they Olympic lifting like? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, sure. But, you know, it's, it's 
that's the kind of view you're talking about there. Well, you know, they're doing heavy leg weights and they're doing Olympic lifts. Well, how, how, how do you know? Yeah, exactly. It's like, how do you know it's transparent? Yeah, it, it, that's essentially what I'm saying is, yeah, that's exactly what I am saying is that how do we know what we're doing is really transferring into what we think it's doing. Like, you know, I'm there thinking like, oh yeah, this is getting them stronger and it's kind of like, okay, it might be getting them stronger at a dumbbell press or something. You know what I mean? Like, but like, yeah. so like, like kind of, again, going back to kind of, Dave is like, listen, if the cornerstone of developing strength is squat and deadlift for lower top body strength and for upper body strength you're picking just say a fucking bench or military he's like what exercises are you picking to support the weak link in a specific individual to support that exercise and he says those exercises then are developing maximum strength which is by more quality that by more quality then in turn support now he didn't say this but then I, i'm understanding where he's going with it uh, yeah. You know, you know bio, and maximum strength is bio more quality, and that will therefore support explosive strength, elastic strength, speed, and multi-directional speed, which will therefore be, uh, which will therefore be bio more qualities that will develop the overall athlete's motor potential, and then that motor potential then therefore supports the athletes, and those bio more qualities therefore support the athlete's SPP and specific skill. Therefore, you know, if you have higher motor potential, higher force output. You match that with higher sports mastery, so your technical tactical ability goes up. You therefore have a superior athlete. The athlete is retaining more higher levels of sports mastery. But it just made me think more about my actual strength, co- you know, strength coach. And that, like it's like anything. Like you ever sit down and just be looking at your program, and going like, well, like, w- like why do I do? Like why do I really believe in that? Do I really believe that that's corresponding to something? Like you know what I mean? Yeah, 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 exactly. Do you know, like you know, like if you're doing like just. An anti-rotation press, you know, like, like now. What? Well, it's funny. I said this on other podcasts. Well, maybe not podcasts, but definitely in videos that I've shot. Like personally, myself, like this is personally me. I detest doing direct core work. I just hate it. I just think it's boring. Yeah. I just, I just <laughs> never like. But, but, but in saying that, in saying that, like, I, I can bang, I could bang out rollouts, no bother, perfect form. I could bang out planks, side planks. So they're definitely, and what, what I do believe. Well, I do believe there is benefit, there absolutely is benefit for most definitely beginners and, and most in, even intermediates to do some direct sort of core work and, and all that. And core work will be a, an even topic in itself, you know, because there's a difference between core stability, reflective subconscious stability, you know, uh, and, and then core strength, which is a bracing mechanism under heavy load. That's why there's this conflict between you know, bracing and, and drawing in. And it's all like, listen, there's a whole fucking middle ground there. That's, it's, uh, it's, yeah, yeah, do you know what I mean? Like, so anyway that'll be a topic i'll do in my own time but but uh but essentially like it's just it's just that's just motor control like it's kind of like learning to cycle a bike like once you learn how to cycle a bike you'll be able to always do it so therefore once you've taught someone how to hold that plank properly someone to do a you know an anti-rotation press someone to do like there's definitely a diminishing return there and then how do you know it's actually correlating to any more sort of control in that area exactly yeah so just that was the same with um with single leg squats once i could do a single leg squat that's what i could do i could do it for the that's you know that's exactly that's exactly what i said in my course last week to my guys this whole argument of bilateral deficit uh and single leg is superior to double leg because you run on one leg and then you know i interviewed chavez smith chavez Chavez smith is like i don't give a fuck if you squat or you split squat he's like they are general physical preparation exercises the body doesn't really care like he says nothing's going to be more specific than the sport and he's he's like a squat is not more specific than a split squat they're both gpp exercises and like so because you get people like i know like mike would say oh when i took my nfl guys and i did single leg squats when the first time they were all over the place and like that's not because like that's just because they never done it before that's like saying i took someone who never cycled the bike before and put him on the bike and he fell off a few times and then he got it and it's like you know 
and it, it was just motor control like that was it like but like my yeah. whole thing my whole thing is like how do you know a, a one leg like a rear foot evidence split squat is actually having more carryover to sprinting you don't like there's no way to test that and like like Ben Johnson all that man did for his whole career was quarter squats and he was the yeah. fastest man alive bar Usain Bolt like so you can't tell me that that split squats absolutely uh, are correlating more or any single leg work correlates more to running like yeah there, there is nothing to, to quantify that by like yeah well um, you know when I spoke to Dave Tate he said you don't you don't need it any more than a quarter squat and you know as much as it will pain me and other people out there it's true because it's general you don't need to do full squats yeah. Now, now, what I what what I would preface that is, I still do believe you should be able to full squat, like just in mobility work, like in a warm up or stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. You should be able to, like, like, like in the FMS, you should be, yeah, you should be able to display those range of motions in your joints. But is it necessary to actually, yeah, I know what you're saying to actually wait the full thing, like, and and this is where Franz Bosch would agree with you there for what you said. Bosch doesn't believe in going through those whole full range of motion because he's like. He, he, he would rather yeah like a core squat and like a boom do you know what I mean like a real short shallow hip angle type stuff yeah so yeah it's, it's just it's interesting you know it's very very interesting um for here what what would your take be then on the bilateral deficit well what's your take on that um it, it's interesting from the research but to me it's not meaningful uh I toyed around with it for a, nearly a year where I I followed Mike Ball's um take on things but you know it, it's general to me it doesn't matter yeah yeah like it's it is it uh eric cressy made a good point though, though like that you know like there definitely is a diminishing return on it. like for instance you know if you took like a thousand pound squatter i i don't see them split squatting 500 pounds yeah exactly <laughs> and then you know you, you took a thousand pound deadlifter they're not going to single like deadlift 500 pounds either so there definitely is a diminishing return to it as well like and and yeah, uh, like and, 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 those, um, with those experiments, well, experiments. I'm putting my fingers in inverted commas here. Yeah. That yeah. Mike Ball's done where he said, "Oh, we we've got a kid doing 315 pounds for X reps." If if you look at that, the, the way it's set up, the, the range is different. Um, you you've got some contribution from the back leg. It's it, to me, it's it's like trying to compare apples to oranges. They're they're just general exercises that you use to lay a foundation for for more specific stuff. Yeah, they're just same squats, split squats, GPP exercises. But like the and the other the other thing that you know Chad Wesley spoke about as well as and I've spoken about this as well is that okay, so even even if you could take an athlete and let's say he could squat two hundred kilo, right? And then he can split squat 120. And, you know, the argument is, oh, he's doing 120, which is more than 50% with less load, blah, 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 all that. It's like 200 kilo is still 200 kilo on the whole organism in general. Like, you know, you're still going to need more. You're still getting a way higher stimulus from that 200 kilo. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like as my friend Jason Kane said, he's like, you. he says, would I rather get hit by the guy who consistently squats 200 kilo or by someone who just does a 120 split squat all the time? He's like, I'm taking the 120 split squat guy. <laughs> exactly yeah basically I don't think you can uh, if you squat in 200 kilos plus you, you're going to be strong regardless yeah exactly yeah yeah. But, yeah by the way just for listeners I'm not I'm not or, uh, for or against either here like I, I, I do both bilateral and unilateral work but I, I always preface this with like listen the likes of Mike Boyle I interned there and I know Mike like Mike owns a business and he has like 500 and we spoke about this actually on Facebook he's got like 500 kids going through that facility in the summer 
and like it's just about logistics like if I had a, if I had a facility with 500 kids going through it personally I would not be back squatting them either like because it's just too it's too caution intensive you know you, you, you want to pick idiot proof exercises risk to benefit ratio but I, I think I think where and I would say this to Mike I think where where kind of there is a bit of conf- not confusion but like where Mike maybe could put a little more sort of preface to what he says is that listen this this is the way I do things because this is like but Mike truly believes this like I think Mike w- would would try and you know Mike thinks that he he would he would use like this his sort of philosophy would in any situation which I would then disagree with like like for instance you know if he trained a track athlete you know he'd have to do a lot more bilateral not have to but you know he train tra- if you train track athlete you know you'd be looking at doing like definitely stuff below five reps he's not a fan of going below five reps you're gonna have to look at things like singles and doubles and you know you probably will have to do more sort of you know bilateral stuff squatting to get that load to get that sufficient load to really to really tap into those sort of qualities that the sprinter's going to need with regards to maximal alactic uh, capabilities and whatnot yeah and, and it's it's horses for courses he he works with I, team I, sport athletes yeah, and I, I, high numbers he doesn't work with you know elite level track and field guys so I think for his purposes it's it's a great program and for his business, it's a great program. Oh, listen, for like you can't argue with the business model. Like, I mean, sure, he's so successful, but it, it's just yeah, it, it's horses for courses, apples to oranges. Un, like, situ, you know, understanding the situation that's behind it. But I guess like it's just about it could be better preface to say like, listen, if I if I had like because uh, one of my mentors, Martina McCarthy, is like I'd love to see Mike have a track athlete for like four years and see what he would really do then. Like, because I actually I think I said it to him on the forum once in strength coach was like Mike, if you had a track athlete. Would you still not go below five reps? And he says no. That would probably be that would probably be an exception where it starts to drop, you know, three and maybe even to doubles, like and all that type of stuff. So, yeah. so like you know, if Mike came out and said that, you know, people are kind of like, oh, well, if I track at he would do it different, you know. So that kind of way, you know. But uh, yeah, again, it's like, and again, I, I I've spoken about this on previous podcasts, like again, and it goes back to what I said earlier on about people like you know criticizing, you know, making criticism of false assumptions. I'm just kind of like people are always like oh, you know, Mike Boyle, he gets no one strong, or no one lifts weights in his gym, and I'm like, have you ever met Mike, spoke to Mike, went to his gym? No, well then, stop talking to me, do you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, like, you know, it's just like, if you're going to criticise something, you better know this t- topic back to front and inside out. It's kind of like, uh, but uh, <laughs> but no, but sorry, diversing off that topic again. So yeah, I just can't stand people like giving these criticisms, and they haven't really dwelled or tried, tried to understand, they've kind of made their mind up already, you know, that kind of way. You know, that's just it. Like, and there's just no, there's just no willing or talking to them about it. You know what I mean? But again, that's because that's just kind of that's that's you know, listen. Everyone is the way they are for a reason. You know what I mean? Everyone is a victim of their culture and a victim of their environment. So you kind of have to, you have to have empathy and compassion to that. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that you have to necessarily agree or or, or like what the person is is com- is saying or coming across. But as long as you understand and have empathy towards it, but. Yeah, like, uh, when I interviewed Stuart McGill, too, it was the same. Like, McGill was just like, I don't know why people do this, you know, like, because I was talking about McGill about, like, oh, people think all you do is brace people, like, and he's like, that's ridiculous, like, you know, he's like, people just want to put people in a box and paint them with a certain brush and stuff yeah. and stuff like that, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's one thing in our industry that, you know, it, it's in every industry, I suppose, but it's just, it's one thing you wish would kind of just ease off a little bit this kind of what it's like the as alan watts would say the game of un, one up one upmanship you know these people kind of say well you know you know he hasn't a clue or you know i'm better than him or you know well his athletes aren't strong or blah blah blah, blah. and it's just like you know why can't you know there's people starving in the world like let's let's just have a bit of perspective here and just you know share information and get on with one another yeah i think that's the difference like because 
we're halfway between a profession and an industry. Like if you're in an industry, people bitch, but when you're when you're a lawyer in a profession, there's not a lot of bitching going on in public between lawyers. So we we just got to grow up, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. Big time, big time. Anyway, listen. Uh, let's finish up on you. You have a, a speed product coming out soon enough on Ruby. So do you want to maybe fill in the listeners on that? Yes, out now. Um, if you go to rugbystrengthcoach.com, under the, the, the product page, there's a, a speed training guide there designed specifically for rugby players. And that is a 90-minute video that breaks down exactly what I do with uh, my rugby guys to, to increase their speed on the pitch. So it's not just regular speed training. It's about how you would apply that to your position and specifically to the game of rugby and uh, how that fits into the training week and so on. And that comes with, um, if you're feeling lazy, it comes with a PDF program where I'll put it together for you. You can just take that on your smartphone and, and open up all the links in YouTube of me doing the videos. And uh, that comes with uh, PDF notes as well. And even if you don't want to buy it, there's a 30-minute webinar um, on the sales page that you can look at and hopefully take something away from in your own training. That's savage, awesome stuff. Uh, so listen, we're gonna leave it there with with care, and um, guys, that was and you know that was officially the longest podcast we've ever done. I think we're on an hour and forty minutes, something like that. But uh, we dropped wow. it. We, yeah, yeah, that was good. It was and it was mainly just me talking absolute shite. But anyway, <laughs> so sorry, sorry for for uh, rambling on there a few times. I uh, like it. Yeah, yeah, it was all good stuff. It was all good stuff. So guys, listen, thanks for uh, downloading the podcast and listening to the podcast and obviously supporting the podcast. Um, if you can, leave a review on iTunes and also tell your friends and whatnot about it so we can get more listens on it. And yeah, so guys, talk to you soon. Take care and stay strong.